Coming up next, no ugly horses! So many horses. Shoot them all, they're all ugly. <laughs> they shoot horses, don't they? Uh, <laughs> they do. <laughs> That's a title to something or other. <laughs> well done, clever boy. <laughs> Here's I a sugar a cube boy. for you. <laughs> I'm a clever boy. <laughs> Welcome to the booking. Oh, no. I have my lollipop. Oh, no. It's delicious. Nom, 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 nom. Restart the episode, The clever please. boy will have his clever boy treats. <laughs> I think the mysterious phantoms uh, lover. Oh no! <laughs> has made his way to the show, guys. It's the booking opening that you've always dreamed of. <laughs> it has finally happened. That was what everybody's been waiting for. People have been <laughs> waiting for that. This is the booking. It's a it's a show where we talk about books. I'm not ashamed to admit it. And my name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. We've got another. Clever boy, oh, no. <laughs> Brandon, right there. Um, hi guys. <laughs> oh, I hope Cormac McCarthy's listening. Uh, <laughs> I, I I also hope that Cormac McCarthy's listening, and he probably just turned up the volume because he wanted to hear more. The guy doesn't even own a computer. Does he not? Does he type all this crap? That's what, that's what somebody said. Apparently, well, we'll get to it. No. In a, we'll get to it in context. All right. We're going to get to it in context. Oh, maybe. Who cares? It's not even a detail that's that interesting. Somebody started a fake Cormac McCarthy Twitter, and his publicist came out and claimed that it couldn't be Cormac McCarthy because he doesn't even own a computer. Does he have a smartphone? I don't know. I, I But I wondered the same thing as soon as I read that. How does he write his books? And I couldn't find any information on it. So. What's he going to do? Use a pen and paper? <laughs> <laughs> Prose like this doesn't just happen automatically. Elmore Leonard always said writing was worse in the age of word processors because it just made it easier and it made it easier to rearrange and stuff, which meant you didn't have to think as hard as you came up with it, which I always thought was the dumbest theory that I'd ever heard in my I've life. I've heard that theory before. But maybe there's something to it. I think there's something to it. I think there's something to flow and there's something to thought and I don't know. We might have lost a little bit of that. We might have lost something. Yep. Yeah, but we also got the ability to Yeah, no, I, we, tweet. we also gained a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm not I guess it's, it's the Dionysian bargain. There no, I don't want Dionysian. Who do I want? Who's the guy that stole fire from the gods? Oh, that guy. What is that guy's name? Procrustes. Promethean. Prometheus. Yeah, it's the, Prome it it's the Promethean bargain. <laughs> there we go. Procrustean's <laughs> a word, too. The yeah, it is. I was trying to pull Promethean. What's the bed? Yeah, Procrustean that, bed. That's Procrustean bed. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the Promethean bargain. We steal word processors from the gods. Yep. And in return, they take a little bit of our talent or something like that. Yep. <sighs> well. Well. You well, know who had some talent. You know who liked The Whale? Cormac McCarthy. You mean his Moby favorite, Dick? His favorite book he claims is Moby Dick. Or The Whale. Or The Whale. Well, Good uh, choice if that's really his favorite book. You know who he didn't like? Who's that? Henry James. Good choice to be a book that he hates. I think that just in terms of style, I don't know who I would want to compare McCarthy to besides Melville. Melville is obviously his forebearer. Melville and yeah. Faulkner. Yeah. He's like a, you could throw those guys into a shaker and... 
mm-hmm. shake them real well, and then pour them out into a martini glass. You get Cormac McCarthy. Put them in a blender. Get them. Get get a bloody pulp, yeah. and that is Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> That's through what and through. Through and yeah. Throw through. Melville in there and throw Faulkner. Yep. Yeah. A little bit of the New King James translators. Mm-hmm. Add Marquis de Sade for spice. Yep. Um, mm. <laughs> and Marquis de Sade. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not Sadian necessarily. No, he's, he's, not. he's certainly got a line in violence and he's got a line in sexualized violence, but I wouldn't say he's like the Marquis de Sade. That's unfair. But I don't know who I'd say he's like. He's just his own thing. He is. Well, speaking of Cormac McCarthy, this is a podcast about him. It's hosted by me, Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. We've got Brandon Chastine, the scholar who's a baller of books. Yo. Right there. Brandon, if you were a horse, I dare say you'd be a pretty one. Thank you, Nathan. You're welcome, Brandon. You would be pretty too. Thank you. And the prettiest of all the horses is the man that you will now introduce. He is the prettiest of all the horses. <laughs> Aw, thanks, guys. <laughs> I feel so... Objectified. Jake. <laughs> there you go. That's the word. Your mane. Right, just going between flattered and denigrated, yeah. but I think objectified is correct. Flattered, denigrated, and objectified. All in one. We do all in the one. booking guarantee. <laughs> You're the one with the mane, if any of us has a mane. Though. Yeah, I've got a mane. I've got a. Like, you do a, have a mane. A princely, lion like mane, wouldn't you guys say? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 very much. Yeah. Nay not, for us. Not nay. like a. Nay. Nay. <laughs> nice. Nay. <laughs> I shall not do that for the. <laughs> bursts of fun and joy followed by long self-hating sighs yeah. that's that's what this show has been reduced to <laughs> did we actually introduce no the prettiest horse of them all we, we haven't okay well, i the, dare say yeah his name the unbridleable do i dare say his name i dare say you do i dare say i do too does he dare say i do too three I R two D two C three P O. Nice, Jack. This is where we first met. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, what was that whole thing? Hold on, <laughs> I don't remember what the whole run was. We had a. It was amazing, whatever it was. Oh my goodness, booking. I can fly. Look, Jack. I can fly. Or something. <laughs> I can fly. If somebody remembers our person, in somebody can find it. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know. I can tell you what episode. It's Gilderstein is dead. No, it's not. Gilderstein is dead. It's. Uh, <laughs> What's the what are the, the two guys are waiting? Alive. Nah, it's the two buddies that are oh, go, waiting for yeah, Godot. Waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot broke us. That classic episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think that was the episode that Waiting for Godot. I can't go deserved. on. Yeah. Oh, I will. Go My on. heart will go on. Jack, this is where we first met. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good chunk of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great stuff. All right, guys. His we've... name is Jacob <laughs> Kyle Mensel. Mm-hmm. It's true. He is the pastor who's a master of reading. Mm-hmm. Also true. He's Beastmaster Funky Town. That's the truest of the all. It's very true. What else is he? The one, the only, prettiest horse of them all. <laughs> <laughs> the prettiest horse of them all. The prettiest of horses. Yeah. is going to be the name of my uh, autobiography. The prettiest, prettiest of horses. <laughs> and so I sat down on the porch. <laughs> I took my wife's hand and I realized I was <laughs> the prettiest of horses. Oh, man. <laughs> I hope that's how you're out of pocket. And she was like, why did I marry a horse? What's wrong with me? <laughs> Two days later, I was divorced. Um, all right. Guys, it, we're a little stir crazy. This has been a long recording day, but we're having fun. Get some delicious pizza at Pangea. I recommend it if you're coming through Evansville. Mm-hmm. But only water to drink. Only water to drink. I don't know why. I thought that was necessary right. to say. We thought about yeah, it. Why would it possibly be necessary to say <laughs> right. that we've only had water? 
It's not like there's, there's ever Today. been oh, any coffee. inviting associated with this uh, podcast. Coffee. Yeah. John Coffee. Mm. <laughs> Word himself. He did. <laughs> <laughs> and we strayed into casual racism. <laughs> My job here is done. We strayed into casual racism. Yes, it is so fun. Because Brandon's a casual racist. He probably hates you. Whoa. Brandon's a casual racist. Racism, what is, is what Brandon does do? It does do. That's right. <laughs> it does do. <laughs> it does do. We're poets here too, guys. We are poets, and we are aware of that fact. I did come home the other day for my daughter to be running around the front yard with a Confederate flag draped over her shoulders. (laughs) No, you did Like a cape. It's because it's something that we should have probably burned a long time ago, but in homeschool, my homeschooling days, we made an American flag and a Confederate flag. Right. And it has just lingered around the house. Now, when you say American flag and Confederate flag. And decided this was a cape. (laughs) And she was literally running around the front yard. Wearing this flag as a cape. Oh. Yeah. Now, I know you well, Brandon. So I know when you mean, when you say American flag and Confederate flag, what you really mean is two Confederate flags. <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> the one with the don't tread on me snake, which is the American flag. Oh, boy. Yeah. No, no, no. Brandon is proud to be American. He's not a racist. He loves. Not Gadsden there on January 6th. I was home. Did you just say you were there on January 6th? I was 6th? not there on January 6th. <laughs> I, I was, at, was. I was at home. With my family, mm-hmm. probably. I don't actually know what day that was. Right. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Right. January, January 6th. 6th. <laughs> but like what day of the week? I could uh, have been out in the field working. Yikes, guys. <laughs> out in the field, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's Brandon. He's a farmer. He's out in the fields working. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> day to day. And there's casual classism. <laughs> oh, man. Brandon the farmer. <laughs> I mean, Brandon, he could have been out in the field working, but. Aren't you going to sing a casual classism song, or are we going to accuse you of casual oh. racism? No, 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 no. Brandon's yeah. casual classist. He hates all the poor. <laughs> uh, Brandon hates everybody. And then he hates some more. <laughs> Blacks and Chinese and lepers, too. Brandon <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> thinks <laughs> okay. they all should be glue, because Brandon, he's a racist uh, and a classist. Welcome all our new listeners. Hello and goodbye, new listeners. No, Brandon's, the most racist thing that's ever been said on the booking probably was when I accidentally mangled that one guy's name. <laughs> Chumbawamba or whatever. Chinua Chebe. Yeah, which I still don't know how to actually say his name, but we're not racists here on the booking. We're not racists. Brandon isn't fat. What else? We're not racists. (laughs) Brandon isn't fat. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you judge the sincerity of everything. Right. Through the lens of not racism and the lens of thinness. That's right. Although maybe we're fat phobic, though. That'd be a bad thing. Uh Uh-oh. Well, speaking of fat phobic, we're not afraid of the P-H-A-T fatness of Cormac McCarthy. That's right. An author that's totally off the hook, off the chain, <laughs> radical, so totally righteous. Tubular, dude. Yeah, he's tubular, man. Uh, we have, let's talk about some booking Cormac McCarthy history. Yeah. So we have oh, done, yeah. whatever, what well, have we done? we've not done anything. We started to do Blood Meridian. Right. And then we quit. Yes. <sighs> because we're lazy, good for nothings. That deserves one star. Or we didn't want to subject anyone that we could still save from, to, or to, rather, the horrific violence and despair and nihilism of that most wonderful of books. 
and now we don't care enough about anyone, so we're reading this and then also doing Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> now, Blood Meridian was a step too far. It was foolish of us to put it on the list. Yes. Uh, I, I have feelings and thoughts about whether I'm glad that I've read it that are complicated because it is magnificent in parts of just in the grand nihilistic poetry of it all. But it does simply cross a line when it comes to violence. Yes. Um, although some people would argue, well, maybe the people back then shouldn't have crossed lines into maybe violence. Maybe the Glanton gang. Yeah. And the- I mean, he is writing about actual historical atro- atrocities, although he's he's pushing things yeah. and sexualizing things in a way that I don't think is accurate. In any case, any more Blood Meridian litigation we care to do? About Blood Meridian? Or the fact that we almost did it, or the fact that we didn't. No, I think that the justification is the episode. They can go back and listen to that. Yeah, I I suppose we covered it at the time. But this is not the same book. No, Cormac McCarthy. Joking aside, this is not the same book, Dennis. I had read Cormac McCarthy prior to Blood Meridian, and I wasn't like, I had not read Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian is a different animal. Yeah, it's just different. It's not, it is not the same Blood Meridian is the Moby Dick of ultraviolence. Yes. I mean, that's American ultraviolence, perhaps I should say. I mean, it is like, let's capture the great white whale, and the great white whale is man's inhumanity to man. It's just its own crazy thing, and it doesn't really... McCarthy does have, has written other books that we wouldn't read. I'd say most of the stuff from his early period crosses lines with the incest and things like that. But yeah, later period, really starting with all the pretty horses, McCarthy is different. I mean, he kind of turned a corner. He suddenly started writing much more in a much more spare, simple style, although nothing's ever simple with Cormac McCarthy, but the have the influence of Faulkner is much more evident in the early books. Yeah, it's like he got it out of his system with Sutri and Blood Meridian and then he decided he was going to write for him very elegant spare thrillers, which is kind of what No Country for the Old No Country for the Old Men is or All the Pretty Horses or The Road or Yeah, the Border Trilogy bridges the gap. The Border Trilogy yeah, bridges, bridges that gap. So, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Anyway, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. He's inevitable. One of those <clears throat> modern greats that most people encounter one way or another that read books. Uh, I mean, yeah. He's one of those guys who's pretty much ensured his place in the canon, even though he's still alive. It feels like people will be reading his books for a long time. New generations of disaffected young men looking for something provocative will discover No Country for Old Men or Blood Meridian or The Road, I think, for many generations to come. And All the Pretty Horses is the romantic kind of nice one that's also full of existential dread. I don't know. Let me stop giving a take because we got to talk about it. Here I am like a jerk giving a like a pre-frame. We should, we should frame it together. So, I think that leads us into context. What's that sound? It's the sound of the contextual Texan firing off his guns. Saying yeehaw like he just did. Brandon is from Texas, and he does provide some much needed. Show him. (laughs) He show is. Show enough. And he does provide some much needed context on the work that we are discussing today. All the Pretty Horses and the Life of Cormac McCarthy. 
Take it away, Brandon. All the books of the Border Trilogy are written in an unconventional format, which omits traditional Western punctuation, such as quotation marks, and makes use of polysyndactic syntax in a manner similar to that of Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> he likes traditional Western cliches. He just doesn't like traditional Western punctuation. How about that? Polysyndeton is a deliberate insertion of conjunctions in, in the purpose place of, of slowing right? up the rhythm of the prose. Yep, which I love. Poly, was it, how do you say it? Polysyndeton. Polysyndeton is something that many of my favorite authors use. And, I'm always tempted to overuse and, it myself. But, and, yeah. and. The comma. But. And, and not a particularly elegant thing, the comma. I don't love the comma. If it can be avoided, avoid it. Although I use, I use many more commas than, for example, Jake, as two of the people whose work I've edited, myself and Jake. Mm -hmm. Jake tends to, if he can get away without that sort of thing, just get away without it. Like if he's using a contraction, like uh, if I go to the store, I will pick up ham. Then Jake will not put a comma there. I often will put a comma there just kind of for pacing and not because I think it has to be there, but if I like the way that it sort of hits my ear, I'll use commas a little bit more. But in any well, case. It's a very Milhauser thing of you to do, actually. Jake yes, is that's right. often Milhauser is very like if – if McCarthy's like, I'm going to take every single comma I can and put in an and or a but, it feels like <clears throat> in, I mean, it's been a while since I read Milhauser, but just my memory of him is like, if there's an and or a but, I'm going to put in a comma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, my, my only philosophy of it is just uh, do what sounds good. Rhythm, cadence, and how it hits your ear. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jake is often known as the Cormac McCarthy of pastors. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. He sits scraping rocks and talking about how man was bred for war. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like the average sermon on a Sunday morning at Pretty Church of much, the King. Pretty much, yeah. Yep. Yep. You might die, you might not. You might die. You might you die, might, you might, might not. Well. You'll probably be chased by a naked guy across the desert before you're done. Mm-hmm. We already mentioned the Twitter <laughs> thing. Yeah. We'll, we'll catch up to you in an outhouse. Yep. Good stuff, good stuff. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you never actually read that book? What? Blood Meridian. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I was. I just heard the outhouse part. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> the judge. Old um, Brandon, his ear pricks up for outhouse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> all I ever listened for is that <laughs> word. <laughs> Somebody say home? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, man. Mama's cooking? <laughs> I spent many a fine time there. <laughs> okay. Motherhood, apple pie, and outhouses. Uh, yep. Uh, that's right. Brandon's three favorite things. The one leads to the other. Yeah. The apple pie. I like how interconnected all of life yeah. is. Life is just a apple pie to outhouse it's to apple pie. circle time, of life. Time is a flat circle. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> Jack, this is where we first met. Okay. Reset. Context. Reset. Go. We talked Context. about Context. Yeah. McCarthy. He was born in not the South. It was a Boston, New Rhode, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. He about came it, from Rhode Island. But it's not the south as you can get. So therefore, he's a northern writer. He's a Yankee. I would like to call him a southern writer. Uh, you can't. That would be a wrong. <laughs> One star for even having the thought. But I consider him, since he like, everything is in Texas. Nope. And he lived most of, most of his life in Tennessee. Well, that's, if I'm not Texas is really its own thing with its own genre called Texas writing. Oh, my then bad. you have Southwest writing. Then you have South a, writing. Can I call him a Southwest writer? No, because Texas is not really the Southwest, apparently. But he's like also into Mexico and Arizona and stuff. Yeah. And even a little bit in California. Yeah. You can't call him anything. You just got to call him, I guess, an American writer. 
But then he goes but, into Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, I mean, so I guess you have to call know. him an international the, international writer, <laughs> the cosmopolitan writer. He's a yeah. cosmopolitan. We put our finger on go. it. <laughs> the great cosmopolitan. This we should make everybody it. happy. <laughs> this should make everybody happy. The great cosmopolitan writer, Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> And he got the, his start by writing uh, articles for Cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. He can make a great Cosmo, I hear. Yeah. According right. to this, he's written only one essay. <laughs> <laughs> this is really funny. This, sheet, this page I have up here that says he wrote 12 novels, sure. Three stories, two plays, and one essay. One essay. essay. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Uh-huh. I, I can't imagine he's written anything. Well, this, they, they say he's Southern, Gothic, Western, and post-apocalyptic is what he's written. Oh, so anytime you dabble in any genre, that has to be added to the descriptors I guess. of. I guess. If you're Cormac McCarthy and you're the greatest living writer, yeah, then you must be the greatest I know living ap- post apocalyptic. I mean, none of us look like that. Ooh, my goodness. Yeah, that's look at old that Cormac guy. there, man. Magnum P.I. There's no pun to make there. Magnum Meow. Magnum Meow. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> No, he's a very good-looking guy. Brandon pulled up a picture, I'm going to say, from the 70s, probably? Yeah, he looks like, you know. Hey, yeah. I found it. 70s tough guy. The essay? The, no. <laughs> no, the the review. The one-star review. Oh, read it, yeah. Yeah, people should understand this is the context of <clears throat> why we all went on that angry riff there. The title of the review is, it's the face, the emoji with the... Like grinning? No, like, eek, face, you know, I don't know. And it says, didn't finish the book, they said. Mm-hmm. That's what By said. <laughs> Ayn Ranaway. Uh, oh, no. One star for One star. stupid libertarian name. I, 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 listened, I listened to the ep on Blood Meridian. They harp on how interesting it is that Cormac wasn't from the South, born in Rhode Island. A simple Wikipedia article with citation, and you know math, talks about how he moved to Tennessee, which is in the South, when he was four, born 33, moved in 37. I spent ages one to six in South Carolina, but moved and live in Philly, but I don't call myself Southern. I know Philly very well. Cormac likely doesn't know much about Rhode Island compared to Tennessee. Did Sutri, we make a big his deal closest this? thing, I doubt oh. it. Sutri, his closest thing to an autobiographical novel, takes place in Knoxville. That's my first issue with these guys. That and they just, that and they seem what? to jest at Cormac, uh, they're on a first name basis. That, and they seem to jest at Cormac and how he wasn't authentically Southern in that at least Faulkner was from Mississippi. So by this logic, if I was born in Kenya, but as soon as I popped out, was flown immediately to America and never left, never returned to Kenya, I'd forever be a Kenyan. The other main reason I write this, they didn't finish reading the book. This is a book review podcast. My cousin writes for a religious newspaper, and this reminds me of when he wrote a movie review for Brokeback Mountain. He didn't see it. Well, these guys read part of Blood Meridian or read some summary like a high schooler who couldn't be bothered to read, they didn't finish it. Uh-huh. I understand if you don't finish a hard book and are not a book reviewer by trade, but basically <laughs> them stating they didn't finish it is like me buying cooking ingredients, maybe bake a crust, then telling people how the pie tasted and saying I'm a chef. <laughs> well... What? I got halfway through the podcast and didn't finish it. So my favorite metaphor. I guess we're <laughs> even. Did Cormac McCarthy himself write this? But I'm not a podcast reviewer. Well, yeah, you're not. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was that was better than I remembered it. I, I don't know. So they took issue better. 
with us apparently making a big deal about something I can't imagine we made a big deal about. I'm sure we. we I'm while sure we just we in passing, we just said, "Well, uh, it, you know, so it's Rhode just Island. that one review about McCarthy, but it got paired with this one about a Shakespeare that came right away. So there, we had those two one-star yeah, reviews right. in a row, and so it amplified it. In our mind. I'll, I'll go ahead and read that because I think that's fun. It was like a one-two yeah. hit against my lack of attention to detail. <laughs> This podcast isn't about books. I mean, it's vaguely about books in that they read a quick wiki summary of an author and usually get several details wrong. For instance, did you know Queen Elizabeth died in 1613, just three years before Shakespeare? (laughs) (laughs) Idiots. Brandon, off the top of his head, says 1613 instead of 31. If I'm not mistaken, just inverted the numbers. Oh, man, better get it right. Uh, Actually, who cares? Then discuss a work of literature and swiftly pronounce said work as a good or a bad book based on the degree of Christian values it upholds. Yep, that's how we do things here. By approaching each work of literature with no sense of charity or openness toward having their preconceived notions about the world challenged, the hosts handicap each episode (laughs) and turn turn it more into an exercise in proselytization. Mm Mm-hmm. See, you, they're right. Yeah. I, I can't nice read. Mispronunciation. I, can't, I can't read. I, don't, I mean, plus I just said yeah. mispronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I understand if books are hard and you can't read. <laughs> Into an exercise in proselytization and affirmation of their own faith and anything resembling a love of literature. I had high hopes since this is one of the few podcasts which delves into classic lit, hmm. but I found it ultimately disappointing. Well, there you have it. There you have it. We are ultimately disappointing. Oh, I'm sorry to be ultimately disappointing. You know whose early life was ultimately disappointing? Who's that? Cormac McCarthy. Oh, do tell. <laughs> oh, boy. Do we really want to talk about his life? Yeah. We've got to have, we have to. Ayn Randian. What's, what's the name of Ayn Randian? <laughs> Ayn ran away. Oh, Ayn ran away. Oh. Ayn ran away is waiting well, if, with big uh, breath. My goodness. Why would you name your self after one of the worst overrated writers in American history. She wasn't overrated. She understood economics and our human nature, human nature, man. One star. She's on the short list of, if I could choose writers that I could blink and have disappear (laughs) from all history, she would be on the short list of writers. I would do that too. Cause I think she's done more harm than good. I mean, and she was really bad. She's right up there with Dostoevsky in terms of, I have had to watch as friends have been destroyed by this person's philosophy and gone into bitterness, anger. Yeah, I've never actually read Ayn Rand, but I've seen the same thing. And it's not that I'm even opposed in principle to, to certain aspects of her philosophy, but I've everybody that I know that's been super into her is self-destructed. That is a fact. I have read one of them, Fountainhead, I think, and... Uh, I just think she's poison. Uh, I suppose we could hate do a nine Rand book sometime just to yeah, kind of cross it off our list, but that'd be a short one though. All her books are long. Yeah. All her books are so <clears throat> I think Anthem might be fairly short. So didactic and oh my goodness. Okay. Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy had a life. A disappointing a life. early one. He had three wives. Mm-hmm. There we go. Sweet. He had two kids. He was divorced twice. No, three times because he's not married anymore. That's too bad. Yeah. Seems like such a well-adjusted guy. Yeah. Well, all right. All right. All right. All right. Let's talk about this All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. So he was born in 1933. 1933. That's a long time ago. Yeah. And he was born in Rhode Island. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yep. You know what? I'm just going to imagine what we did. I'm going to imagine you said that. 
And then I said, a Northern writer. And then we all giggled and like, yeah. you know. We like said, hey, it's interesting that he's from Rhode Island. We did a bit. Known I, as a, I'm guessing we did a bit for, yeah. for, for like three minutes. And, well, here is what I found interesting about him is yeah. the fact that, so he, he moved with his family to Knoxville. His mm-hmm. dad was a lawyer. And so they actually lived in kind of the wealthy neighborhood, grew up Irish Catholic. And so the whole mythos that he has, I think of himself being someone who, he wasn't like Dennis Johnson in the sense that he actually lived this life. Yeah, he doesn't sound like it, the poet laureate of like yeah. cowboy. Until he chose to take crap. this on himself. Yeah. And so when he was finally where he, where he got out of his father's house and was able to go and kind of pursue the life that he wanted. See, I think that, let's not get some of these details wrong here, right guys? So he went to University of Tennessee for a while and then he joined the United Air, States Air Force. And was he part of a conflict? No, but he went to Alaska. So this would be 53. This is, when was the Korean War? I think Korea would have been going during that time, but yeah. I, yeah, could, I think that's right. But he was stationed up in Alaska and this is when he claims this is the first time in his life that he started really getting into reading. And he published a couple stories in the University of Tennessee's student magazine, won a couple awards, but then that was kind of it for writing for him for a while. Huh. It was during this period that he took on the name Cormac. What's his birthday? Charles. Or Charlie. Apparently there was a ventriloquist dummy. Charlie McCarthy, sure. Charlie McCarthy, and he didn't like the fact that he could be associated with the ventriloquist dummy. So he had to change his name to Cormac, probably after the guy who built Blarney Castle, I think, is the Cormac who built that, a king or something. I have no idea. Irish chieftain. So anyways. Sounds more Scottish. But yeah, so. Sounds more pirate to me. Cormac. So he he grew up in a wealthy neighborhood. He grew up in the... <laughs> Sorry. Are we back. Are we back? Can we keep going? That was not the sound effect I thought it would be. But yes, keep going. Oh. Hi guys. Hi. Sorry about that. Um Yeah, so he grew up in the he was he was fairly well off with his dad, went to University of Tennessee. So he had to actively rebel against everything in his youth so that he could be Come the kind of guy who would eventually, with his first wife, be living in abject poverty in a trailer where they were having to take baths in a pond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, I, I don't know, man. The more I read about this guy, he, he kind of, his prose is wonderful. His stories are great. But he himself just kind of drives me up the wall mm-hmm. because it seems like he's had to inflict his suffering on himself. Yeah. He has had to try and make himself into the suffering artist. Right. And it doesn't help that he won't ever give an interview, so you actually don't know who he is. He's this mythology that's built up around him. And every interview he's given is a weird one. And it's really hard to distinguish what the truth is. He hates other literary figures. The only... The, yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, in the timeline, in, our, in your timeline, folks, Jesus' Son episode hasn't come out. In our timeline, <laughs> we already recorded it. And Dennis Johnson is a guy who feels like, eh, he just had his demons. And then... By God's grace, he was good at writing about them, and but he was always driven and consumed by them one way or another, yeah. which which feels really authentic and cool compared to Cormac McCarthy being like, "Crap, I need some demons. What are my demons? I guess I guess yeah, these will so, be my demons." And he would win the f- awareness, win the awareness. The literary world was aware of his existence. Right. So in '79, he publishes Sutri. That's not even his first one, though. It's in the mid '70s he publishes Orchard Keeper, right? Is that right? When was Orchard Keeper? In, oh, no, earlier than that, 65. Oh, wow. I didn't realize he'd been 
active so that, that long. That's when he was like 32. So he publishes his first novel in his early 30s. It wins some credit it, with the literary world. It got the, I think it won the William Faulkner Foundation Award. When it was released, actually, critics noted how similar it was to Faulkner. So you had this influence, this heavy influence. And if people don't know anything about Faulkner, it's kind of a high modernist writer who kind of created what's called Southern Gothic. Flannery O'Connor would take that and run with it. But Faulkner's influence over Southern literature, if you think of Southern literature, Faulkner is the father of it, where you take the idea of the South post-Civil War and its attempt to deal both with the loss of the Civil War and the ghosts of the Confederacy and also the reality of slavery and its manifestation in as both guilt and as both something that still exists within the South. And so that's pretty much Faulkner. And he deals with that through psychological drama. And so As I Lay Dying, which we've done on this podcast. There have. And have we done any other Faulkner? It's the only Faulkner we've done. And it's one of the only books that, for whatever reason, I never ended up finishing. Yeah, along with you weren't even on, were you even on that episode? No, I just think I ran out of time. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a weird anomaly. I mean, yeah. Oh, well. But anyways. Like, I... It just sticks out in my mind as a regret that yeah. it's one of like well, we'll probably one of the only things Faulkner that we've eventually. done that I didn't finish. Right. We should go back to with Absalom Absalom or something. Yeah. Oh, by the way, before you go on, Brandon, just a quick note of trivia. Yeah. He said his first novel came out sixty five. Just a just that means that W. Somerset Maugham died the same year that Cormac McCarthy's first novel came out. Yeah. And that's that's weird. Yeah. And so he and. So he's writing in the 60s. He gets some credibility. The literary world grows rather fond of him. And and then he publishes um, Suchery, which is loosely autobiographical about his adventures that he had with this one friend on the river in Tennessee. But even that, you know, it's more like borrowing stories from others because he, again, was the rich lawyer's kid. But still, he was the rich lawyer's kid who also didn't want to take his schooling seriously. And so would go and hang out with the people that he wanted to be with, yeah. right? But in a, he's like building who he was, wants to be. He During this period, he's married. He marries a, a girl he met in university. And like universities would offer him positions to come and speak. Like they would say, take $2,000 and come talk to us about your books. And he would turn these offers down because he didn't want, he said, everything you need to know about my books are in the books themselves. So he's turning down money, and then at the same time, he asks his wife if she would go and get a job so that he could write. And so she gets fed up and leaves him, And which, good for her, mm-hmm. right? But let's see. This is when finally he gets a Rockefeller grant, which allows him to travel, and then he writes Outer Dark, which was actually before Sutri. Anyways, he's building his name. You have Child of God come out, and then around that time is when he decides to move to El Paso, Texas. And that's, I think, where he still is to this day, right? He's out in El Paso. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't even get to El Paso until 76. So if he was born in 33, that puts him at 43 when he finally gets to the place that he's kind of really associated with from mm-hmm. 76 onward. Anyways, and it's after that that he does begin to have some success. He gets involved with a PBS writer who wanted him to write a story for some series they were doing on television. And then finally, he got a huge, Gu- uh, what is it called, the Guggenheim or award or whatever. It's like the equivalent of $235,000 today that he gets awarded. And that was a big deal for him. It finally freed him up to become the Cormac McCarthy we know today. His first big success was Blood Meridian. The MacArthur Fellowship is what it was, is that he got. Here it is. 
and Saul Bellow, a guy that we had been talking about earlier, and Shelby Foote, they were ones that really argued that he should get it. Saw fought for promise. him to get yeah. it. Yeah, they saw his promise. And it was actually after he got the genius, this genius award that he wrote Blood Meridian, which would make his name. And even though it kind of had mixed reviews, certain critics saw the promise that was in it. Harold Bloom famously thought it was one of the most important pieces of American literature written. They said it took him three times to actually read it because he was so put off by it. And then when he finally forced himself to, he found a masterpiece there. Really? Yeah. Probably after more people, after he realized that it was becoming something that he should pay attention to. Yeah. So let's not. Can't, can't not have his name associated exactly. with Yeah. The... That's funny. I did not know that. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, Harold Bloom did do a lot for it. I mean, he was, he was, he was like one of the, he was the champion of that book. I yeah, but say. you just wonder what got him to realize that. Like, it was probably the right people having liked it before him. Mm-hmm. That's really curious. He, he knew, he, he sensed the winds blowing and... Yeah, and wanted to take advantage of that. Well... That's a very cynical take on Harold Bloom. That One is such star. A, that is such a cynical take. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, all this to say that... I sense you don't have very much respect for him. There's, yeah. Or his critical capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good old Harold Bloom. Good old Harold Bloom. Bloom and Onion. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Bloom Meridian. Yeah. Bloom Meridian. Hmm. Bloomberg. Bloomsbury. <laughs> Bloomsbury. Yeah. Madame Bloomsbury. I guess the big point to take away from here is that <laughs> he's like... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Barry Lyndon. I mean, uh, as cynical as this sounds, he really, he decided he wanted to be a writer. And that's what he committed himself to during the 70s and 80s. I mean, I'll push back a little bit. I think lived experience is great. Most of the great authors have some. Yeah. (laughs) But there are great, great authors who have had nothing like the experience that they write about. That's that's what Shakespeare would come to mind. They're just able to empathetically put themselves in the shoes of characters and of situations and of times and places. And I think that the people he admired and the people that he met during this period influenced what he wrote. Right. So even though he didn't get those experiences necessarily directly himself, even though he would get some just because he lived in El Paso, he would go and be with these people. And he's so closed off and reclusive that we really don't know what he does with his spare time. Yeah. Right? Who knows what he was out there doing? Right. But anyways, I mean, I mean he, he obviously sure he wasn't born and raised as a cowboy and all these sorts of things, but he had to somehow get these experiences. He, he right? knows the smell of leather, you know? I mean, yeah. like he's, he's got it from somewhere. He does a good job of faking it. If Yeah, and he's a natural cynic and he's a nat- he doesn't like the literary world, which actually I give him credit for. So like, I don't think he ever cared that Harold Bloom liked him. Mm-hmm. But he did become friends with a guy named Edward Abbey. We, had been t- we talked about this at lunch, not with the people on the podcast. They didn't go to lunch with us. <laughs> no, they didn't. But Edward Abbey was a guy who was an environmental writer, but kind of crotchety and a cynic about it, where he didn't like the other liberals and just had weird ideas. But he has a wonderful book called Desert Solitaire. Mm -hmm. And so they became friends in the 80s, and they hatched a plan where they were going to release wolves into Arizona or something like that, which sounds fun. Mm -hmm. And so, but that was like his only literary friendship. He writes Blood Meridian. It takes a while to sort of establish itself, but it's in the early 90s, actually the same year that Jesus' Son was published, mm-hmm. that All the Pretty Horses is published. So they come out in the same year, 92. And this sells immensely, 190,000 copies. So he's got his MacArthur Fellowship, and this sells like hotcakes. <laughs> and the rest is uh, history as far as Cormac McCarthy goes. He writes his Border Trilogy after that. 
And then actually he's not overly prolific. Let me pull up his bibliography or his bio, yeah, bibliography here. He wrote those all in the 90s. And then it's like 2005 is when No Country for Old Ben comes out. And then the Cohen brothers, they find a kindred spirit and mm-hmm. arguably one of the few movies about a great book that might arguably be better than the great book. I think it does. I think that they, they take a lot of stuff that's adolescent. Yeah. This is going to sound snobby, but I think they take a lot of stuff that's immature about McCarthy and ditch it and yeah. only keep what tells a, tells a great epic story. So like you could arguably say that if you want a good dose of McCarthy without ever reading McCarthy, just go watch No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Because they... It's geniuses reflecting a genius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so then you have The Road that comes out in 2006, and then he's been silent for like 16 years, and now finally we're getting two new releases that we actually have already talked to. We're going to talk about one. Mm-hmm. Have we announced that? No, spoiler. Uh-oh. Plug your ears. Plug your ears. We're going to do The I Passenger. I didn't say anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah, The Passenger. Yeah. You just said it. <laughs> yeah, but we'll announce it later. Oh, yeah, but we'll announce it officially later. Yeah. But you hear it, heard it here first. We'll see how many people actually make it through my context and how many fall asleep. <laughs> it's a great context. Yeah, it's wonderful. So anyways, some other things. So he's really into, where is he now? Mm-hmm. He's part of this thing called the Santa, is it the Santa Fe Institute or something like that? It sounds I read, familiar, but I, I Yeah, know. I read this. I was reading this one thing about him. So, you know, the parking lot at the Santa Fe Institute. Yeah, I got it. You know, you see rows of vehicles typical of American academia, SUVs and minivans. And then there's this old Ford F-150 or Ford, Ford F-350 diesel engine. Mm-hmm. And they're like, who could this possibly belong to? <laughs> and you have all these scientists that are there together and they're, it's like a think tank for science. And then you have Cormac McCarthy, who is also a part of this. You know, my brain just heard think tank. Think tank, But yeah. you said think tank, right? Think, yeah, I said think tank. Okay. He's part of this think tank. Now we're all, he's surrounded by all these scientists and he says he likes scientists more than he likes literary people. And so that's why he's part of it. And he just released an essay about the unconscious mind where he argues that um, the unconscious mind is like the motor that drives the animal, Mm -hmm. but language is just almost like this secondary feature of humanity that doesn't really explain anything about us or something along those lines that it's our unconscious drive that determines who we are. Right. And it's our animal instinct. And I mean, that sure, that probably explains quite a bit of his writing. But anyways, the book we're talking about today, All the Pretty Horses, it's part of the Border Trilogy that kind of locked him in as a great American writer. I think it's because of the Border Trilogy that he had the re-Renaissance that brought about, not the Renaissance, the re, um, what do you call it? where people just re-engage his former works. And Blood Mm -hmm. Meridian then was kind of brought up as, well, it's actually, you thought the Border Trilogy was great, but actually he had this gem before that. Mm -hmm. So here, and then, yeah. And so in the 90s are what made him. And so All the Pretty Horses is kind of the book that established this now man who is now a giant of American letters as the giant that he is. And so we're reading it and we're going to talk about it. Talked, Talked a little bit about the Southern Gothic. This is, I think, like you said, Nathan, where he establishes his own voice in a way that he hadn't before, in the sense that he'd established, he had an established voice before, but he changes it to a different. It changes voice. here, and yeah. like Blood Meridian is kind of a transitional piece, but even that's pretty heavily influenced by Faulkner, mm-hmm. right? And Faulkner's all over that as well, and Melville, and Melville, and those in in the New King James Bible, all these things that just had heavy influences over his early works, mm-hmm. to where. He's his, the distinct style that is 
You meant, the, you meant the the King James Bible. You didn't mean the New King James Bible. Yeah, I meant the one, King one James Bible. The yes, authorized sorry. version. The King James Bible. Yeah, just one, one star. Shoot me, <laughs> big N N K J. Yep, reader. And so this is where his voice becomes clearly distinct from I think those other voices. And so you can see this a lot with writers actually, and it seems to be that their transitional pieces that where they're getting them their footing is the one that's often seen as their great masterpiece. Hmm. So Midnight's Children for Rushdie, Remains of the Day by for Ishiguro, and then this Blood Meridian for... I mean, you can't, there is the karma, the energy, the feeling of discovery yeah. that gets locked into certain works and yeah. it does make them pop in a way that yeah. you just can't fake. But yeah, but you can't, so outside of Blood Meridian, this is definitely his most important work as mm -hmm. far as understanding Cormac McCarthy. His most accessible work probably is The Road. Successful? Accessible. Oh, accessible. You wouldn't say this? This might be, but people tend to really like The Road. Yeah. The Road was the one that was introduced to me long before. Yeah. But I bet you like this one better. I feel like I do, but I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. Uh, I had never, I think I'd heard of The Road in. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This is like my 20s. Some Somebody hands me a copy of The Road and says, you should read this. Mm-hmm. Right, the road was that moment that, where everybody was kind of discovering Cormac McCarthy and yeah. our circles and right. Yeah. Kind of the one, two punch of no country for old men, the movie and, and you had the road, which a certain kind of young yeah. man really liked. Uh, had including a movie me. too. With, yeah. With uh, Vigo. Vigo, Vigo Aragorn. Which I've never seen and I understand isn't great, but I've never seen it. It's not the greatest movie. Anything else in the context? It's no children of men. No, it's not. Did you like Children of Men? I love Children of Men. Yeah. The movie. Children of Men is by far the better post-apocalyptic movie. but Maybe the best post-apocalyptic movie. I think it might be. You'd be hard-pressed to name a better one. Yeah. Mad Max Fury Road, maybe, but that's more like a fun adventure kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Context done? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you got some more. Uh, no, I wanted to make sure we talked about Faulkner and all that stuff, but we already did that, so yep. we're good to go. A Rose for Emily. Yep. All right. And... What's that sound? In stereo? That's not in stereo, it's just in life. It's flying overhead from left to right. It's the baggage plane, which indicates the part of the show where we talk about our baggage. Jake, what baggage do you bring to Cormac McCarthy, Charles McCarthy? In my 20s, at some point, a friend gave me a copy of The Road, and I read it and thought that was fine. That was different. Still have images from it in my head. I haven't read the, or haven't watched the movie. We came to Blood Meridian together, decided to quit it. I did go back and finish it at some point. And that is what it is. That's really it. Like, I, I mean, I guess I have a lot of respect for the his style and his ability. He's one of those guys who's a, what would someone say, a high populist? I mean, he's a, everybody who actually, you have to actually like books. Like the average man on the street might not like Cormac McCarthy. to like to read. But if anyone likes to read, They've read him and they think he's awesome. So it's easy on a podcast like this to want to push back a little bit. And I don't necessarily mind that instinct. I think it's a healthy one to say. I mean, as I've said before many times on this podcast, when something's really popular, it's worth asking why. And it's worth yeah. even maybe having a 4%, not in a nasty way, but having a little bit of a prove it, you know, a little bit of an antagonistic spirit going like, okay, you're really popular. Why? Why does everybody love this? Not antagonistic. That's the wrong word. But you know what I'm saying. Brandon, your Cormac McCarthy baggage. I read Blood Meridian mm -hmm. an under, as an undergraduate and then liked it enough to read all the Border Trilogy. Mm -hmm. 
And I think I came to him because of Flannery O'Connor, weirdly mm-hmm. enough, getting into kind of Southern literature. Found him, and then I've read most of his most of his books. So, was he going to be a part of your dissertation at one point, or was that just Faulkner? Yeah, he or? was. The Orchard Keeper was going to be my opening. So, yeah, I like him. He was great, and I'm kind of now approaching him as an older man. And there's a lot of youthful attractions to him that don't still do it for me, but he's still his prose is amazing. Yeah, he's a great writer. Yeah, ain't no disputing that. And I kept up with his other stuff, The Road and all that as it came out. So Yeah, I think I've read all the popular ones that people read, all the pretty horses, The Road, the... I haven't read all the Border Trilogy. I've only read the first one, but... I thought about the Border Trilogy after I finished this one. It's good. It's nice to see what happens to John Grady Cole. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to... About what you would expect. Yeah, probably Mm -hmm. some sort of existential longing and then... Sad end. That's my guess. Yep. Blood Meridian was pretty seminal for me, for better or worse. I mean, the judge, he's one of the great villains. Mm-hmm. Um, what can him one, and Ahab. And him, Ahab. Who else you got? Dracula. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Macbeth. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, Mr. The, Bennett. Mr. Bennett, yeah. <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Kathy. C.S. <laughs> Lewis, Kathy, and the judge. No, I mean, I, yeah, I tend to enjoy the Western thing. When it's done well, you know, I like John Wayne. I like spaghetti westerns. I like that kind of stuff. I like I like stories where everything gets stripped away and all you have is your your guts and your survival and you know, things become primal. When they're when they I like them when they attain the status of myth. You know, I like American myth making. I like things that are larger than life. I don't like Western stories when they're just kind of, well, this is what it was like to be in the old west lots of people were dying of syphilis and like deadwood for example has never had any appeal for me because it demythologizes the west and i actually don't like seeing the west demythologize i i would say that's distinct from what carmack mccarthy's doing i think he's i guess you could call what he does demythologizing but i don't think it really is because i don't know well whatever we can talk about it anyway i've read all the cormac mccarthy stuff that everybody's read i like him i think he's pretty great I think he's can be juvenile and problematic in ways that I'm sure we'll talk about. And I don't know that I have any more interesting things to say about my relationship to the guy. I'm sure I probably read him young enough that I was tempted to try and write like him. I mean, he is one of those un- annoyingly infectious. He's very infectious people. Yeah. And I'm sure it was crap if I did, but yeah, Cormac McCarthy. What a guy, what a guy. This is my second time reading all country for or all, all country for pretty men. All country. Yeah, this is my second time too. I think the only one I haven't read is Sutri. Yeah, which is supposed to be for people that really like what he does, one of the ones that you'll really like. Uh, yeah, I mean it's his autobiography basically, right? Yeah. Jake Jake was so excited by the idea of reading Sutri that his headphones <laughs> like a cartoon character popped off. <laughs> they did, they flipped off. Flipped off and flew across the table. That's that's literally what happened. Well, I was given one of my ears a break and I just had it offset and then something happened with the I don't know what happened. It's I think weird. just listening to me describe my relationship with Cormac McCarthy, your brain grew two sizes. And just caused my headphones to Spring off my head. That makes sense. That's my theory. It's pretty cartoonish. It was. It was the kind of thing that would happen to a cartoon character if they were really excited about something. As, well, guys. Speaking of being excited, I am excited to give our big picture thoughts on all the pretty horses. So, what do you guys think, big picture wise? 
It's got all them pretty horses in it. Got I all enjoyed pretty horses. It. Yeah. It was a it was a fun read. It I mean, I don't know. I, I think part of my part of my read of it was well, I'm glad this doesn't have all the garbage of Blood Meridian in it, but also it loses a little interest because it doesn't have the garbage of <laughs> something like it that. It just doesn't quite attain to Blood Meridian in terms of its beauty, poetry, striking anything. But it's still really it was still really good and really it's it, really good. I mean, I would say it's one of those books that the story is such a genre story. I mean, there is nothing to it. It's just true love and yeah, there's a reason it became a Matt Damon. Well, he, he's such yeah, exactly. a yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's yeah. such an a nihilist though that I just Yeah. Although the nihilism doesn't come through as much here as it does maybe in well, certainly in Blood Meridian. I was going to say maybe the road, but the road actually has a weirdly hopeful has place it goes. One, it's like one of the, it's the only one of the three that has a hopeful right. sort of. But it's also got barbarians eating babies or whatever it is. Yeah. So, the cannibals, man. The, the cannibals, man. I, I don't know. It's, it's weird to look at this book as an older man. It's just like, man, it is so simple. And there's not really much meat on that bone. There's like beautiful things that he's describing and the way that he evokes it all is wonderful. And some of the conversations with the grandmother, I would say attain a kind of psychological complexity or, you know, they get there. They're kind of interesting in the same way that the judge or Anton Sugar or some of those characters in his famous books are, are interesting, but man, there's just nothing to this book. He falls in love with the most beautiful woman in the world. And then that love is snatched away from him. Mm-hmm. And then he fights some dudes and takes revenge on the one dude that was the most mean to him. Yeah. And then that's the book. That's it. Yeah. Like there, it is such a cheapy B Western of a plot. Like coming it's, of age. Yeah. Baby. He comes of age. He's a little wiser, a little sadder, missing some teeth, and the globe keeps spinning. And now the little boy who just wanted to get away because the ranch was being taken away from him is now the hardened. Lone Ranger out there on the plains. Yeah. I mean, for a guy that is so exaggerated in the way that he writes, so ornate, so over the top, even in something like this, that is more Hemingway-esque. Cormac McCarthy trucks in a lot of understatement. He never, he's very cinematic. He never tells you what his characters are thinking. He just tells you what they do. I mean, yeah. very rarely, at least. He's just like, John Grady, it almost reads like a screenplay, a, a very weird poetic screenplay. John Grady went over and smoked a cigarette. He thought for a while, he, it's just like, Action, 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 mm-hmm. action, action. I think there's something primal about that, something that allows you to kind of plug into it because you're not actually getting any psychological depth. It's like we always talk about with Luke Skywalker or something. Like there's nothing there. So you can just be your own John Grady and kind of read into it whatever you want. But it also maybe felt a little shallow to me this time. Like, oh, he actually doesn't really have much to say about who John Grady is. He doesn't have much to say about, certainly doesn't have any interest in defining who this young woman is. Alejandra, uh, yeah. Yeah, Alejandra. She's just the most beautiful woman to be to have sex with in, some, in, in a lake. Yeah. And, you know, I liked, I liked Rollins, or no, what's the name of his best friend? Oh, Rollins is his best friend, and Rollins Blevins is, is the other Blevins one. Blevins is the kid that yeah, gets them into the mess. Rollins and Blevins are good sort of Western supporting characters, you know, in, in, in the, from the school of, you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, or a Clint Eastwood movie or something like that. You got the kid, the impetuous kid and the dumber complaining best friend guy. Yeah. And they're fine. But minus the grandmother, who is really interesting, there's just not, there just wasn't a lot 
to this book, which isn't really a complaint, I don't think. I mean, it's just, I was surprised to go back, read it, and realize, oh, he was actually aiming pretty low. Like, he wasn't trying to do a lot. He just Well, wanted. I don't think psychology and stuff is really his thing. Yeah. He doesn't really, for as interesting, it's the stories are more about Cormac McCarthy than they are really about the characters. But metaphysics and philosophy often is, and and... That's what I mean is that like even in the other books, like The Crossing, it's more, though I think The Crossing is actually my favorite of the Border Trilogy, hmm. but it's not about John Grady Cole. Right. Only the cities of the plain and all the pretty horses are about them. The Crossing is about a brother, two brothers who go over to Mexico together. It's, it's good, but I think that's where you have the most character development. Like I'm thinking about No Country for Old Men. There's not a whole lot of character development in that mm-hmm. book. The father and son and the road, they're fairly one-dimensional you know what I'm yeah but like with No Country for Old Men is a good example it's very simple but the unrelenting fatalism of the villain exactly is is really memorable in and of itself it's more the big ideas and concepts it's not a surprise that he loves scientists so much he was accepted into the American Academy of Philosophers or something like that so he's he is more Dennis Johnson is more interested with character Mm -hmm. he's more interested with big ideas big ideas And, and many of his books have them yeah I mean Blood Meridian has things to say, whether, whether you like it or not, it has things to say about colonialism, about yeah. uh, war, about all this stuff. And so I'm, it feels like even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't like it, even if you think some of it's juvenile, there are often these big ideas at play. There's just nothing like that in All the Pretty Horses. There's a nice Hemingway-esque sense of doom. He does what Hemingway they, wanted to do with that stupid hospital scene and that we all dunked on and mm-hmm. uh, with the woman dying at the end of the book that I still can't remember the name of. Farewell to Arms. Farewell to Arms. Like Cormac McCarthy, what Hemingway tries so hard to do and ultimately we thought failed at, Cormac McCarthy does in his sleep in this book. Just that sense of, man, it would be nice if it worked out, but that's She's just not, not the way to. life works. Sorry, John. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book is, in some ways, for that reason, maybe the most affecting of Cormac McCarthy's books that I've read. It's, it's very sad. Well, it's also because in the end, that's not really... That's just a part of the story. It's not really the main part of the story, right? Yeah. She's out of the story well before it, the ending. It's just the making of John Wayne's character and, yeah. and the the searchers. Right. Right. Like, it's just like, it's the backstory. Mm-hmm. It's the, this is the, this is the girl that he's always sort of staring off into the sunset as he stands in the doorway. Yep. The thing that he could never have, the unattainable object. Yep. This is the. This is his first kill. This is his first, you know, whatever else. This yeah. is just like the sad story that made him the American anti-hero. And we, we know the, we know that movie. Yeah. We don't get the coming of age of that character. And this is what that is. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good way to think about it. And yeah, that's a nice take. I like that. Yeah. I mean, that's a nice take, but it also explains what I find sort of reductive about this book is that, well, actually there's, Every, every Ethan Edwards from The Searchers has the same backstory, and it's ultimately, there's not much to it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I sound like I'm criticizing the book. I'm really not. I loved it. It's, it's a good read. I recommend it unreservedly. By the time she's out of the story, you still have this much left to go. Yeah. The whole scenes with the captain and all that stuff still. Yeah. And the prison stuff is pretty great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah. I think this is his most popular book because, or his most, maybe his most accessible, accessible because. Of the love story, but that's not really, it is about the making of Mm -hmm. this John Wayne character. Right. Yeah. And then Cities of the Plain kind of wraps it up. 
And it's also about, you know, how, which all his books are, how can the old West and the new West coexist? Mm -hmm. Like how is, and they can't really, that's the whole point is that the violence and the free, the, the free life of the cowboy can't coexist with the new America. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's in essence what No Country for Old Men is about, right? Well, yeah, it's No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Things happen in today's world that you can't even wrap your head around. Yeah. So I guess in some sense, he's been telling, he's been telling the same story. His early books, The Orchard Keeper, Sutri, those seem to be him retelling Faulkner stories, Mm -hmm. kind of the grotesqueness of, is it the mansion, the one with Popeye? Oh, uh, Sanctuary. Sanctuary. Yeah. He had a mansion, the mansion, right? Was that not, am I thinking of someone else? He had a book called The Mansion or well, they're Popeye in a mansion. had a they're mansion. They're in a mansion and yeah. Yeah, it's kind of an old decrepit kind of Texas yeah. Chainsaw house, I think. But Anyways, yeah. and, and Faulkner has stories like that. Mm-hmm. So really, early Cormac McCarthy is just coming to terms, becoming a writer under the tutelage of Faulkner. And mm-hmm. then he finds what he wants to write about. And I think Blood Meridian's getting there, but all the pretty horses is where he really, really comes to terms with it, which mm-hmm. is this idea between the dying of the old world and the new world and I think Cormac McCarthy has strong sympathies and wishes that the old world could stay that way. Although doesn't the old world suck? I mean, the grandmother comes from the old world where nobody treated women yeah. right. And they're all just a bunch of. I think Cormac McCarthy lives out medieval. in the middle of El Paso without a computer. Yeah. But the old world's like the blood meridian world. I mean, yeah. I don't know what there is to mourn there. There's ultimately, I think it, everything just sucks. There's just two different kinds of things that yeah. suck, but I haven't just, I haven't actually captured his philosophy because he is mourning something, but Heck, yeah. if I know what. The same thing I am, I guess. I mean, I I respond to the American sort of Americana of it all, the myth-making. Yeah, you mentioned that you don't want to see that Old West die. Mm-hmm. But you go out and try to find it, you're not going to find it. Yeah. Well, guys, I think that ushers us rather nicely into the Hall of Heroes. Old John Grady Cole. Isn't that the point? What's that? Sorry. I mean, if Faulkner was his inspiration, ultimately, and Faulkner's writing about the Old South, which is dead, and had things to mourn the loss of, and had something to try to cope with, you know, in its history and reconcile. I mean, the Old West has a mythology, but also you get down to the root of it and how romantic is it really? Mm -hmm. There's still a nostalgia. There's still something. And the nostalgia may not be rooted in anything that's real. Right. That seems like the point. Yeah, like, we still need to, I mean, this is a corny way of saying it, but it's like, yeah, we need to tell ourselves the story still, even if it, it was barbaric when you actually get down to it. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like, uh, what's the print the legend movie? Uh, the man who shot man Liberty, who shot Liberty Balance. Balance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's, there's something to that for sure. The hall of heroes though, John Grady Cole. What an interesting guy. Yep. I mean, maybe he was, I don't know. Fight me. He's good. He's laconic. He's yeah. a Western hero kind of dude. I like him. He's good with horses. He's good with horses. He's got like a magical horse force. I mean, he represents this desire to be able to stay in the old West. He wants to, he doesn't want that ranch to get sold. And Mm -hmm. so then decides on a whim to go off to Mexico with a friend. He's definitely the kind of character you would want to be able to tell a story like this. Yeah. Yeah. Always. He loves the ardent hearted. Is that what he says? Probably that thing about him. I think that Cormac McCarthy makes that comment about him, but where is that? It's towards the beginning. I, mean, I think if there's any morality to the story as to why, like, this is his particular hero, it's because he would always love 
the ardent hearted. Do you guys remember this line? Or am I crazy? No, I don't. Uh, it sounds familiar. Where is it? I probably just look it up. Yep, I think I just found it. All all, his, yeah, yeah, go ahead. All his reverence and all his fondness and all the leanings of his life were for the ardent hearted, and they was all, would always be so and never be otherwise. Yeah, what he loved in horses was what he loved in men. The blood and the heat of the blood that ran them. And so I think that, in essence, like if you're trying to, like with Hemingway, you can find those loves of things that make the men the men for Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Here, I think this is kind of what drives Cormac McCarthy's appreciation for figures like this was yeah. that isn't it, it isn't a love of ideas. It's just the love of the heat of the blood that runs these things and mm-hmm. the ardency and the fervor, the desire to really live. And I mean, it's almost existentialism in its yeah. most naked form. It's just like, it doesn't really matter what you're going after, but yeah. if you can go after it strongly. Live with strength and courage and vitality. Right. John Grady wanted something. I mean, if you're trying to figure out what makes John Grady a hero, right? It's that he gives himself fully to what he's after. He pursues it with courage and diligence. And for the most part, he seems to have some principles. Right. Right. He's got some kind of code. Yeah. It's his own code. But it's a code. It's a code. code. Yep. And the villains, I guess, if we're the villains layer, if we're just going to mix them, right? The villains are the ones that don't live... Right. Dracula. Well, the captain, I guess, if he's our villain, he has a code. His code is, no one's ever going to get the better of me again. Yeah. I mean, doesn't he kind of explicitly say that at some point? Like, yeah. they laughed at me once. I forget what his what he says, but something like that. But also the guys in the prison, right? Mm-hmm. And so this kind of ruthlessness and inevitability of, and the animal nature of men. I mean, Cormac McCarthy sees that as being a reality. Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of who Anton Chigurh represents. Right. It's not like he likes it. It's just this inevitable fact of life mm-hmm. that there's almost a judgment quality that's just the brutality of life. And that they're in, in this particular book, represented by the captain, represented by the Mexican law, represented by the p- prison, whatever it is. And John Grady Cole gets to test his manhood against this mm-hmm. by how does his code of ethics, how does his strength, how does his, how does he hold up against it? Right. It's pretty similar to what would happen with what's the main character in not the sheriff, but the other guy in No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah. Josh Brolin, whoever. Yeah, whoever. I forget his yeah. name, but he kind of is another. He's just another John Grady Cole. And you get to test and see how do your principles and your ability to last as long as you can. Yeah, I think it's just endurance. It's your life is going to yeah. punish you. It's going to keep punishing you. And then it's going to punish you some more. And if you can stand there and take it, <laughs> and keep taking it, then that's what makes you a hero. And if you can take it without inflicting it on anyone who doesn't somewhat deserve it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Only give it to those who, only give violence back to those who seek it. And if you cannot whine about it, his friend whines about it. But if you can be, have that nice American John Wayne understatement. Yeah. Those are the things that he seems to admire. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's every Cormac McCarthy. It's like a postmodern John Wayne hero. Yeah, I guess we're right, we're in the villain's lair. Anybody want to say anything about the sheriff or the or not the sheriff? What is he? The captain or not other than what I just said? Yeah, yeah. I like the grandmother. I mean, her dialogue is great. All Would those, you put her yeah. in the villain category? I mean, she tears our young lovers apart. I guess then, yeah, she gets him carted off to prison. She should know. She should have sympathy for him. She was denied her great love, but it's curdled her into anger and vindictiveness at the world and she wants her yeah 
I mean, she's she's played and cast sympathetically. Like she's she's she sings "Let It Go" in her frozen castle. She sings "Let It Go" in her frozen castle. I mean, you get it. You get who she is. I, I think she's far and away the most interesting character in terms of. I actually like to hear this person talk. It's it's yeah. fun to read that dialogue. She she feels very authentic. Yeah. Well, with the Mexican stuff, though, you also see Hemingway's influence pretty Absolutely. significantly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and with her too, she reminded me a little bit of what's her face from For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yes. Pilar. Pilar. Yeah. Yeah. This whole book made me think of for whom the bells tolls and never in a way that was complimentary to for whom the bell tolls. I don't think. No, yeah, I think this one might from the bell tolls has a couple individual scenes of warfare that this book doesn't have simply because it's not about that, but that that maybe are better. But this book certainly does the, uh, for lack of a better word, the erotic stuff better than, and it It does think of for whom the bell tolls. Right. Well, it kind of, it has the same kind of thing, which is we're going to make love and the book's going to describe it in some weirdo, you know, metaphor, something about the coldness of the moon and the water and all this stuff. And I'm going to try and make it pretty erotic, but not actually get biological. And I think for what it's worth, which is maybe not much, Cormac McCarthy does that sort of thing much more elegantly than stupid Hemingway. Although he had Hemingway to look at and build on and easy to make fun of the world turning scene and for whom the bell tolls, but he had it to make fun of and then one up. Yay, Cormac. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what else I was going to say, but yeah, there's any number of places. The grandmother conversations, having a character in dialogue creates such a complete world for you. And you just, you're, you're genuinely interested to just hear this character keep talking. That was similar to Pilar or Pablo, I think was the dude's name in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Any other secondary characters you guys want to talk about? We are in the crawlway of secondary characters. Blevins is pretty fun. And Blevins is fun. Blevins being the kid, right? Yeah. I get them confused. And it's sad when Blevins. Yeah. Yeah. Dies. Yeah. Yeah. That part made me sad. I almost didn't want to read this book again just because I knew that was going to happen and it was going to make me sad. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. He, he's good. I don't know what else to say about him. I mean, he, I don't know that, that sort of Western archetype of the impetuous kid who throws away, throws away his life. John, John Wayne movies and Clint Eastwood movies are full of these kinds of characters. Yep. The guy who talks tough and has some real talent, but can't quite actually wasn't, wasn't, was, was basically just bred to die. Like the second Blevins sets foot in this world, he's going to die. It's only a matter of how and when those characters are interesting, but let's see any other secondary characters. You got it. I like, I like the little portrait of his dad at the beginning, his dad and his mom, that stuff's mm-hmm. well handled. I don't know. What about the twists and turns? So many twists and turns. There's not, not, there aren't too many twists and turns in this book. Well, he gets carted off to jail. Yeah, most of it seems, with Cormac McCarthy, a lot of things just seem inevitable. It is the problem with, it's the same problem I have with Greek tragedy. Fatalism kind of takes the, it's like, there's no way this girl's going off with him. That's yeah. just not the choice he's going to make. That's not the choice Cormac McCarthy would ever make for his character. Therefore, and you know that when Blevins shows up, that even though he's a likable character, bad things are going to happen because he shows up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You just know that these things are going to happen. And so there's this, you're right. He, he does write. So we mentioned King James Bible with the language, but there's also sort of just an undercurrent of Greek tragedy to his works or Shakespearean mm-hmm. tragedy where you just feel like, yes, this was what was going to happen. I think right. it's more Greek. I mean, Shakespeare, it's always like, well, actually, Macbeth 
could have made a different choice, but he's a moron. Exactly. So he made yeah. This John choice. Grady Cole is kind of just wrapped up in fate, and yeah. there's nothing he can do to escape it. Right. And the best he can hope to do, which I think is the best that Cormac McCarthy hopes anybody can do, is just push against it for as long as you can. Courage is grace under fire. I mean, it's it's yeah. just Hemingway. Uh, yeah. Brand ex- existentialism. Push against it. Stand up to it. Have a little bit of a sense of humor about it. It's the American way. Yeah. And, and it kind of shows the emptiness of the American ethics. Yeah. yeah. Because if this is all there is, then yikes. I mean, does Cormac McCarthy actually think it's showing the emptiness or is this just, he's just like, yep, that's life. There you go. I I think he's, I think he thinks this is just life because over and over again, this is what his characters are faced with. And it seems like each book is just asking to those characters to be tested against what they're able to do in face of it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think he has a, I think as far as ethics go, it's like, he is like Hemingway to that extent that he doesn't have a whole lot to offer. Right. No. So He's, he may be the most purely fatalistic author we've read. I'm not sure. Sh- I think that that has to be true. I can't think of anybody more fatalistic, yeah. more nihilistic, more just it. It's all written. It's all destined and it, and then it's over and right. gone and is meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. There's maybe a little flicker of beauty in the way that you handle it, but whatever, you're going to get ground up by the machine eventually. Yeah. You can just do it gracefully or do it poorly, but either way, you will rot in the same dirt as the rest of us. Yeah, either way, you will be chewed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but 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 unlike many authors we've read, he doesn't give you a lot of hope for even finding a little happiness before that happens. Like like I said, there's no way Alejandra is going to say yes. It's not her destiny, as as the god of this universe decrees it to say yes to John Grady to go off and marry him and be happy for a little while before the, you you could have a little bit more of a Tim Schill ending where it's like, yeah, everything sucks, but we can actually make our own happiness. And Cormac McCarthy is more like, nah, you can make your own happiness for maybe five minutes, but then, then the, the angry gods of the universe will catch up with you and you will pay for it a lot. Yep. You'll be going to the bathroom and yep. That's where they catch up with you. Well, in a weird way, I would say, Blood Meridian feels more hopeful to me because at least he gets to sit at the bar and talk to the judge and say, you ain't nothing. I mean, that's a real thumb in the eye of yeah. fate. John Grady Cole before, doesn't. Yeah, before a terrible. He turns around and gets screwed by fate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but John Grady Cole doesn't even get that much. John Grady Cole doesn't get to, he doesn't get a big triumphant moment of sticking his thumb in the eye of fate. Uh, I, I would say the characters in No Country and the characters in Blood Meridian do get a little bit of that. All right. Twists and turns. Those were some great twists and turns. Hey, it's the Salon of Style. Part of the show where we talk about the style. He ain't no Dennis Johnson, but he's a master. I just, uh, yeah. He's pretty good. He's pretty yeah. good. Just really, I mean, there's not a lot to say about it, but yeah, again, I mean, style is just what makes his style work, Nathan. What makes his style work? That's a, a whole lot of magic. A whole lot of magic. Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, you have the the thing that we talked about. What's it called again? Polysynthetic syntax, right? There's that, but there's just so many little things like he refuses to use punctuation, and you always know who's talking, mm. and 
Yeah, what probably makes his style work as much as anything is careful and very copious like, revision and yeah, a ton of elbow grease. Right. There's I mean, no I, way to pull this off without just like maximal effort. Yeah, I mean, I would say, what else would I say about how his style works? I mean, he is very cinematic. He does in, in terms of simply giving you images and not giving you hardly any interiority for these characters. I mean, I think he might be the most cinematic writer we've read in terms of somebody who really just spends, I'm not saying he never does it, although maybe he doesn't. I I just didn't think to notice, but very rarely does he tell you what a character's thinking. thinking. And if he does, it's kind of more a big picture authorial speculation on, you know, John Grady stood and the world turned before him and big things were happening. Yeah. But it's just a whole lot of showing. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and very little telling. And the only telling that you get is in what you would hear from the character himself. Right. Right. So you're just there engaging with these characters the way you would any other person. And you don't get a window into their soul except for the one they reveal. And it's actually some, somewhat similar in that sense, not to all of Tolstoy, but often Tolstoy will do this effect where the thing we always quote the I hate you and everyone and his eyes said, yeah, he's really just giving you the moment as you would observe it if you were an invisible spectator in the room. And then he'll jump in and give you a giant monologue of Pierre or whoever. But oftentimes, especially in the scenes where people are talking and stuff, Tolstoy just stands there and tells the story as though you're in the room with the greatest observer of all time. And the greatest observer is just saying, observing this and observing that and observing the other thing and there, there's there's actually it's like he's such an effective observer in the way that he places you there that you feel the interiority like you understand what Levin's thinking but he doesn't actually tell you what Levin's thinking and Cormac McCarthy d- does a similar thing but much more spare and American and kind of I'm really not going to tell you what he's thinking actually it doesn't even matter what he's thinking what's interesting is that you don't know mm-hmm. you don't actually know how much pain this guy is in right now. He's just lighting another cigarette. And he's also a master of something that's been a part of the pulp tradition forever and the American kind of tough guy vernacular, which is understatement and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Just like, how are you feeling? Not so good. I mean, that's not a real example, but if somebody was had their guts hanging out in a McCarthy book and you ask them how they're feeling, they'll say, I've been better. You know, it's, it's, they're not going to say, I'm in great pain because my guts are hanging out. They'll, they'll say, I've been better. That's a stupid or example. Or they'll just say, shut up. Yeah, exactly. Or screw you. Every line of the conversations between him and his friend, whatever the guy's name is, that I always get confused with. Blevins. Rollins. Rollins. Yeah. It's just that. It's just. There are five things that pass between the actual lines of dialogue for you to pick up. Right. And so it is like, how you feeling? Screw you. Right. And that's supposed to tell you a whole lot, actually. Mm. And it tells you something about their relationship, too. Right. And so it's just showing you something that's more developed and more real in that sense, more true to life. And if you, if you are a good enough observer of people, then you learn a whole lot about this relationship between how you doing, screw you. Mm-hmm. Or whatever the actual yeah, yeah, yeah. thing he would do is. But that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's, it's a very American way of writing dialogue. It's a very genre way of writing dialogue. It's very it's very a Western way of writing dialogue. And Cormac McCarthy is just about the best at it 
of yep. anyone you could name. I mean, it's very Hemingway. It's very Hills with White Elephants, that sort of thing, where we know exactly what these characters are talking about, but they never actually say the word. I don't know anything else to say about his style. I guess the only other thing I would say is it is a happy thing that he is attached to a genre that can handle these kinds of big swings into the stars wheeled above him, like a whatever, whatever. Yeah. It's like one of the, one of the things that we made fun of about when we've made fun of purple prose, it's not that every metaphor that, yeah, what's his face? Something wicked guy reaches Ray, for Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury is bad. It's, it's just that they don't belong in this homey little mm-hmm. small town situation. It, they don't help you understand these boys and stuff as, as much as Michael McCarthy is like, he rode his horse and riding behind him were all the ancestors of all the cowboys that have ever rode horses. And we're like, yeah, I get that. Cause I've been to the Museum of American Art and I've seen cowboy movies and this this My genre. Dad bi- and Grandpa loved John Wayne and right, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Our feelings about this genre match the big swings he's going for. Well, I guess that I think we've already talked about this, but the haven of reflection upon deeper meeting. The Haven of Reflection upon deeper meaning. Yeah. Kind of makes you want to take a nap, doesn't it? I think he might be sending Jake right over the edge. Let's see if we can get him. <laughs> Let's play this a couple more times. <laughs> deeper meaning, man. I think, yeah, I think we've talked about it. Yeah. Go back and listen to what we just said. People. Yeah. Just listen to the episode again. Quit being lazy. Yeah. Don't be lazy. Don't expect us to draw all the threads. Well, these guys refuse to draw threads because they only read a Wikipedia summary and yeah. obviously don't like the book. One star. Well, that means uh, you've never read Cormac McCarthy because he doesn't draw all the threads together. Like the Blood Meridian has one of the most ambiguous endings of any book I've ever read. He's dancing with that bear and that guy's making holes for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I've no clue what's going on. I, at have, the end no of that book. I have no clue what's going on. I assume that something horrid happened, but. I mean, I think I know what happened to the kid, but I don't know why that guy's making holes or yeah. or what exactly why the judge is dancing with the bear. Anyway, yeah, fate, man, fate, it catches up with you. But all, but man, you can fight against it, and that fighting can be its own glory. There you go. Touch those pine needles. Touch those pine needles. Touch them. <laughs> Touch them. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Well, Brandon, how many pretty horses out of 93 do you give to all the pretty horses? 80, 83. 80, 83. 80, 83. Wow. 8,083 out of 90. 80.83. You loved this book. Mm-hmm. Did you recommend that people read it? If they're going to read a Cormac McCarthy, sure. If they're going to read a Cormac McCarthy, is this the one? If they're only going to read one? No, read The Road. Yeah, really? I guess. I don't know. You know, I don't love the road. Maybe I was projecting. I didn't love the road either, but at least it's got, I think it has the least offensive stuff in it. I was being a dirty projector when I, when I said Jake probably didn't like the road. I, what I really meant was, I don't care that much about the road. Yeah. I don't know. Something about when popular author or when these kinds of guys decide they're going to do their genre piece. It's like, you do realize a bunch of science fiction authors already wrote good post-apocalyptic stuff. We like, don't need you to write your own version of The Walking Dead. Right. And we don't need you to mess with our clone stuff, Ishiguru. Yeah. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. 
Ishiguru. <laughs> that book slowly is becoming the one that people re- say is his best. I like, preferred it to Remains of the Day. Huh? I preferred it to Remains of the yeah. Day. It's it's like every time I see his name on a list, that's slowly starting to get higher than Remains of the Day. I mean, it's much more accessible yeah. instead of some dumb story about a, a butler. <laughs> <laughs> Nazi butler. An OCD Nazi butler. Yeah. <laughs> it's a story so about it may, it may end up being the one that he's remembered for. I, I think that it in Remains of the Day probably. Yeah. It doesn't hurt that it Remains of the Day has a Anthony Hopkins movie. That'll keep it in the conversation for longer, yeah. maybe. But yeah, Never Let Me Go is probably his, his masterpiece. I don't know. It's great. Yeah, it's good stuff. Talk about <laughs> fatalism that old done well. <laughs> man, get him and Cormac McCarthy and Dennis Johnson in a room together. and Oh, man. The three people I'd like to meet in heaven. I guess it might stink because Johnson's a corpse. <laughs> <and> <laughs> Yeah. I was going to make that joke if you weren't. Johnson but, would stink. Yeah. Um, but Cormac McCarthy and Ishiguru would probably have an awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be funny. <laughs> yeah, it would be funny to see uh, two guys have an awkward conversation over the corpse of Dennis Johnson. Yeah, it, probably, it would probably end with Cormac McCarthy <laughs> dancing with a bear. Well, that would be good. Yeah. You don't know what happens to Ishiguru. All right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, but he'd sure start to write a novel about it and then 10 years later have written a novel about something. Who is Shigeru? Yeah, Shigeru. Jake, how many horses... Jake, how many pretty horses out of 97 do you give to... Uh, Why does he get 97? I got 93. Because I don't remember what I gave you. <laughs> uh, fine, how many horses out of 9,000 do you give to oh. all the pretty horses? 87,000. <laughs> Brandon just... Indicated something very rude off mic, and I am personally very offended. How many pretty horses? 87,000. Out of how many? 90,000. Okay, that's good. That's a good score. All right. I'm glad you approve of the score. You give it an A, but not an A+. That's right. And out of 900 pretty horses, I'm giving it one ugly horse. This book sucks. No, it's good. I don't know. Whatever. It's it's fine. If you were grading it in an MFA program... Would it get an A? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> I think it's fairly well done. <laughs> well, yeah, I think this gets an A. Maybe an A minus. Could have uh, been some more commas. <laughs> yeah, a few more commas. Mac McCarthy passes your MFA class. Yeah. You know, it's I very big. <laughs> I, I would I would appreciate some quotation marks. I, I think it yeah. is. Come on, Cormac. A it's very a little pretentious. A minus. Affected to not use pro- quotation marks. That's the thing about. That's and what we just started doing. Really is just straight up affected poser mm-hmm. yeah. who pulls it off. Like it's easy to resent, but hard to deny. Yeah, I listened to it this time. Spoiler alert! And it is. I don't know what McCarthy book I'd actually tell people to read. This one's not my favorite, as you could probably tell. I mean, I love it, but it's certainly the cleanest. So it's got that going for it. Yep. I know country maybe might be the one that is not so violent in the way that it's written that, ah, but I don't know. The movie's actually better. What do you do? Where do you, what's the entry point? Maybe the road is the entry point, but I don't, I just don't love the road. I'm with you. I'm not excited by that option. This might be the one. Yeah. I think this is probably the entry point. If you just want like a, it's a good, fun, a good sampling of what McCarthy does yeah. in a non-toxic package. It's pretty good. Speaking of non-toxic packages, our patrons at the $50 level get those in the mail that we have not wow. contaminated with swine flu. No, that's true because they, they've got uh, books in them. 
yeah. uh, the books that we're going to be reading, in fact. And isn't that fun? But for $10 a month, we'll give you a booking donor shout out, which we're about to give to people. So let's do it. You go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to get these kinds of donor shout outs. And we've got donors such as Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Yep. That's one of them. <laughs> the Artful Anthony Dodger and Bootstrap Betsy. I agree. Keep going. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Good job. The Immortal Chelsea E. Well done. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Bravo. Lily of the Valley. Congratulations. Andrew Nestor the Lovebirds. Great job. The Creeth Master. Hey. Hey. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Yo. Jane and Katie, we're cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis and Killing Till We Have Faces. Bravo. No, I Yeah. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Yay. Console Prime Adam. Yay. Nathan, not me. Yay. Ryan the Red Avenger. <laughs> Who else? What manly man just walked in and started helping with this? Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Yay. So pleased to see you accomplishing great things. DJ Sammy G. Yay. Congratulations. Benny and Dana Tiberius. This calls for celebrating. <laughs> Did you look up like a lame list of... <laughs> No, it appears going. that he might have, yes. No, this is just how Brandon talks to his employees, I'm guessing. Uh, Eric and Catherine from Beyond Window Breaks. You did it. <laughs> Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan. So proud of you. Noah Constrictor. I knew it was only a matter of time. <laughs> Till what? I don't know. <laughs> well done. Uh, Anthony is cold and hates life, liberty, the pursuit of cheese. Warmest congratulations on your achievement. Warmest congratulations <laughs> on your achievement, Anthony. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Congratulations and best wishes for your next adventure. Midnight Ninja Ellen. So pleased to see you accomplishing great things. Is he just from like cards? Is, is one of these going to be so happy for your bar mitzvah? Oh, it's Jay, getting better. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Hope you're thrilled about your new job. I sure am <laughs> happy for you. <laughs> Timothy, the writer at dawn. Hooray. <laughs> Eric and Kate, the Cape James Kings, who are warm and love bees. We just couldn't be happier for you. Maddie, Maddie, Matt, man. It makes me so happy to think about your promotion. <laughs> Sweet Jay. Why would you say that to an employee? <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about your promotion, and it yeah. makes me so happy. This comes from the Hallmark people, so this is great. Right. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. I couldn't have come to a more deserving person. Cold Steel Cody. Feeling so much joy for you today. <laughs> Jack the Librarian Barbarian. What an, imp- <laughs> what an impressive achievement. <laughs> John Bobadilla, Bob Diggity, and Captain Tadeo is mate. Oh, my goodness. We hope you can feel all the pride and happiness surrounding you as you head off to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> the other saxophone, Alex, and Dumpstep Danny. Simply overjoyed to hear your good news. Ryan, the terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who no longer is stuck in the cold. Please send cheese, though. You've worked so hard for this. Ben Solo and Kyla Wren. Congrats. John the Cosmic King of Chaos. This is awesome. <laughs> Matthew the Mind Flyer. You're awesome. And are you okay? Get your gun. Way to go. Flight of the Valerie. Congratulations to my new favorite homeowner. <laughs> <laughs> Thor Ragnajosh. With your... <laughs> Oh, man. With your touch, it's going to look amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Dutt-Tot. <laughs> Bet you thought no one would notice you've hit your goal 30 days in a row. <laughs> Peglodon. Well, I did. <laughs> and I'm impressed. <laughs> what is this list? Like, what is this? Who is this for? <laughs> this is just... Affirmation? People who can't think of what to put in their <laughs> greeting card. Really? Yeah. There's a Google list for that? Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's on, 
Hallmark.com. Peglodon. Keep it up. Christopher the Flower Hulk. You are proof that good things come to those who are willing to sacrifice to reach a worthwhile goal. <laughs> Lady of the Crystal Lake. The words can't express how proud I am. <laughs> Yet they just did. <laughs> I'm imagining somebody writing some of these like in a bereavement <laughs> card. Uh, Ian, the death of Miriam, Lord of Death. You have the creativity and determination to do whatever you can dream. Mysterious Phantom. I hope you feel proud today and confident in your ability to rise to your next challenge. Jeremy, the Dark Hooded Lord of Death and his brooding bride, Maya! Maya! Celebrating the dedication you've shown on the way to this achievement. Remains of the J. You've earned every bit of the success you're enjoying. Abram, the puller of teeth. I've got a feeling this is only the beginning of even more great things to come for you. La Mort de Trenton. Celebrating the record you just set and looking forward to watching you cross your next finish line. Oh, my goodness. Daniel, a man among men, and Jen, who strikes again every now and then. I commend you on this latest success. All right. Any final thoughts, Jake? Nope. Any final thoughts, Brandon? The reward of a thing well done is to have done it. That explains this podcast. Goodbye, folks. Goodbye. Bye.